0: Good afternoon. It's Monday the 17th of April 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border and Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. Plus, we
1: have a guest. Uh, David, let's uh, get straight on then with uh, this article from uh, the Scottish Union for Education, uh, which is headlined, Are Schools Harming Children by Affirming Their Transgender Identity?
2: Yes, this was an advert we were running last Wednesday, Mike, um, for this event. So this was our A live event in Dundee asking this question, are schools harming children by affirming their transgender identity? And I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to go along and uh, hear it in person. Uh, There was quite a significant demonstration by the, uh, the trans rights activists outside and we have a little video of that. Do you know him?
0: Uh,
3: personally. <laughs> well, how do you know then? Oh, he's very famous. <laughs> he no,
2: he have, he he, have you stuff. met him? He he's he published, published his, his stuff, views.
3: You can read <laughs> it yourself.
2: <laughs> yeah, but 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 <laughs> have you not met him? Have you not know, talked to him? He's had articles published in The Guardian. I've had so many students talk to him. Well, uh, oh, so so the, the, <laughs> oh, the Guardian published them, did he? Yeah,
3: yeah. and The Courier. Telly and uh-huh. like, it's
2: Harry. Uh huh. like and you, a it, you, it. you it. Yeah. yeah. yeah There's no reason that you're What, what, your board what, what, yeah. what mate? Well, I'm, I'm filming. You're demonstrating. I'm, yeah. seeing, I'm seeing you demonstrating. You, yeah. You're here to demonstrate so that uh-huh. people can see you. I
3: know yeah. you think you have power behind that phone. You're just hiding. You know? <laughs> like it would be really nice to be able to see your face and have the conversation. You can see my face. Yeah, but you've got a phone in your well, way.
2: Well, I'm, 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 fil- I'm filming. filming, I'm filming you am filming. You put
3: a phone right in our way, sir. Yeah, but but <laughs> you're
2: but you're demonstrating so people can see you. Yeah, is that is that not is that not the, <laughs> I, I was hoping to ask what uh, dreadful bigotry that uh, had been published in The Guardian that had led them to this um, this viewpoint. I was hoping to ask them what they thought of bigot was. I was hoping to get into a conversation, but as you saw, I was closed down um, and uh, wasn't really allowed to get any any proper interaction. So uh, we we it, it was still quite an interesting exchange and it was a very interesting evening and we're very pleased to be able to welcome... Um, Stuart Waiton to the program um, uh, to discuss uh, his views oh, well I, maybe we should quote the demonstrators and say the very famous Stuart wait so Stuart welcome
4: I think you need to say the very famous bigot Stuart
2: Waiton <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't quite I couldn't quite make myself say that um, there's obviously there was obviously a lot of pushback about the event I and, and resistance to you having this discussion, to asking the question, um, did you have any trouble uh, organising the event and, and getting it set up?
4: Yeah, we initially had a church in the centre of town um, and I thought, I better tell them, you know, make sure they, they know exactly what this event is about. So I sent them the leaflet and then I got a rather a panic-stricken phone call uh, within no time at all, thanking me very much for telling them that this was happening, but saying in a very, very nervous... In fact, the woman I spoke to, it was it, a voice was shaking because she was saying, I agree with you, I agree with you, but we can't do it, we can't do this, we can't do this. Um, and she said it was because they, they have a group of young people uh, some of whom are, are trans-ish, uh, and this would be a safeguarding issue if there was demonstrators and so on. To which I said, "Let's be honest. We both know it wouldn't matter if who was in that building. You don't want to host this event." And she was trying to deny that, but then went on to say, "Well, but we've but it's political. It's political." And I said, "So it's not safeguarding, then? It's political." Um, and so, and so the conversation, uh, conversation carried on, uh, in this vein. The thing I think is quite interesting because then the council, I tried to get a council venue, I tried to get the McManus, va- um, gallery, um, lovely venue. They said, yes, that's fine. Absolutely fine. Uh, and then I says, oh, have you read the leaflet? Um, and they said they hadn't. And then he read the leaflet and then he immediately got back and said, oh no, we couldn't possibly do this because it's political. Of course, the point that should be raised here is that if questioning trans ideology is political, surely trans ideology is political. And if that's the case, how is it in schools and how is it in primary schools, which is one of our contentions, that whatever you think about this issue, however liberal you are, and I'm pretty liberal on most things, if something is ideological, and political and contentious, how on earth is it taught to 11-year-old children as fact? So that is the question that we're asking schools. So uh, on Wednesday, every primary school in Scotland will receive a letter from myself asking them this question, or indeed a number of questions, about how they can justify... Uh, And it's a specific letter, uh, lesson. You can go and look at it at the PSH, whatever it is, uh, PHP document or lesson three, transgender, where they talk to children who are 11 years old about being transgender and being transphobic um, and so on. And as I say, my question to them is, if this is a contentious issue, if it is a questionable issue, if there are people who think this is child abuse, which some people do, how on earth is it a part of the national curriculum? If you want to have 15-year-olds debating what transgenderism is, I'm all for that. I think people should debate this and have arguments for and against. But at 11 years old, having a curriculum framework that says as fact that you may be transgender, um, and encouraging young children to think about themselves in that framework is, to say the least, highly problematic. And that is why we're doing meetings. So as, uh, we've got a meeting in Aberdeen in the Sportsman Club this Wednesday evening at 6.45, and we'll be trying to do events uh, across the country. And I'm increasingly thinking we need to start doing mass Facebook advertising so that parents actually know that this is happening in their schools, um, because a lot of parents are unaware that transgenderism is being essentially promoted to their children.
2: And just uh, briefly, Stuart, if you could tell us a little, about, a little bit about the actual event in Dundee and the speakers and the conclusions that they came to on the question as, as, as to whether this, is, this form of education is harmful.
4: Yeah, we had an excellent panel. I'm hoping to use them again. Jim Sillers, ex-deputy uh, leader of the SNP, Maggie Mellon, who's a independent thinker, social worker, consultant. Uh, Ewan Gurr, who's a columnist with uh, uh, Evening Telegraph in Dundee. And uh, Dr. Jennifer Cunningham, who is writing a pamphlet for us um, on this very question, which again, we are going to publish this pamphlet and send it to every school uh, in Scotland. And every everybody there, obviously, this was a meeting to, that was a critical questioning meeting. And the individuals there gave a variety of um, insights and issues regarding this, uh, this matter. Uh, and there's no question in their mind, there's no question in the mind of the parents and grandparents that turned up that this is profoundly problematic um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and has to be challenged, so again, as i say we'll we 'll hopefully have these speakers come back to discuss these uh, a variety of issues in connection with this uh, in the future. I think one of the things that 's worth pointing out, which we can which broadens it out is one of the real problems that I find with the trans framework, is that it 's this obsession with identity and this um what appears to be a kind of new type of etiquette or morality about listening to listening to children uh, and respecting what children say. So you had is uh, it Daniel Radcliffe, the Harry Potter guy, uh, this week saying um, that yes, it's great. We must listen to children if ch- what children identify as. And I actually had there was a letter sent by Antifa to the church that eventually put on the um, uh, the venue. Um, which made the argument, how dare I, uh, reactionary bigot that I am, how, de- how dare I not uh, recognize children's agency? And this becomes a fascinating thing where you start to see the corrosion or the collapse of, of distinction between adulthood and childhood, right? and this demand that what a child says has to be validated, recognized, uh, and supported. So I've just written an article for this week's Substack, which is coming out, asking the question to uh, Daniel Radcliffe, I'm sure he won't respond, and also to Antifa, uh, as that if, if you had a, a well-developed 10-year-old child who decides she wants a double mastectomy, or mastectomy, um, should we accept the agency of that child? Because following the logic of their position, they would have to say yes. And that's where we end up in a profoundly brutal uh uncivilized and horrific situation if you follow the logic of this type of argument which on the surface appears to be polite seems to be a, as i say a kind of new form of etiquette seems to be child centered all these all these kind of liberal um uh terms but you know as soon as you get down to what that actually means it's an abandonment of adults uh, from the world of children and can only be profoundly harmful for them.
2: Indeed, uh, Stuart, thank you very much. Just to uh, emphasise a couple of points that you made there, uh, the political nature of this. Uh, we have a, 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 a slide here that shows the Scottish political leaders out campaigning um, for trans rights and um, uh, being involved in, uh, or being photographed with you know, even signs uh, calling for uh, violence against people who might disagree. Um, we also had an event over the weekend in Belfast uh, where uh, Posey Parker, uh, Kelly J Keane, was again uh, taking her uh, roadshow uh, called Let Women Speak to Belfast. Uh, she n- now needs a £1,000 worth of security in order to maintain her safety at these events. I know Stuart had to uh, spend f- uh, money on security for the event in Dundee as well. Um, but it seems to have been a very, um, a very uh, well-attended, popular and successful event once again, just like the one in Glasgow. Um, and uh, Ms. Keane said, I know many of you, it's, it's taken a lot of your big girl pants to come out here because it's really genuinely intimidating. And uh, just to prove that's the case... Uh, this gentleman who went along to support uh, Kelly J. Keane um, was later assaulted in Robinson's pub in Belfast, no link to our own uh, Mr. Robinson. And um, the reason he was headbutted seems to be he was wearing a shot that defines a man as an adult human male. Um, And uh, finally, we have a shot from uh, the counter demonstration, a a view of the counter demonstration. And I thought it was interesting. I just got a little highlight there. One of the uh, trans flags was uh, emblazoned with a picture of Lenin. And that gives you a big clue where the ideology is coming from. So uh, we'll leave that one there. Uh, Mike, back to you.
1: Okay, thank you, David. Thank you, to Stuart, as well. Thanks for that. So uh, let's move on then to uh, digital ID. Uh, and, uh, well, the legislation that we've been talking about, the Digital Protection and Digital... Sorry, the Data Protection Digital Information Bill is in Parliament uh, today. This, of course, is new regulations. They're doing uh, exactly with this what they've done with the Online Safety Bill as well in the sense that they're pushing uh, particular... Uh, political agenda here. We'll come on to exactly what that is in a second. Uh, but in the meantime, sort of trying to uh, frame it in—in in, it's all about protecting your digital data and your digital rights. So what they're saying is that uh, new data regulations that will reduce annoying cookie pop ups on websites, crack down on nuisance calls and bigger fi- with bigger fines and contribute 4.7 billion pounds to the UK economy over 10 years are going to be debated in Parliament today. So Uh, It's all uh, presented, Brian, as as being uh, very positive for us. Let's just remind ourselves, I've shown this before, but let's just remind ourselves what the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill says. Uh, It's a bill to make provision for the regulation processing information related to identified or identifiable living individuals, to make provision about services consisting of the use of information to ascertain and verify facts about individuals, to make provision about access to customer data and business data, to make provision about privacy, and electronic communications to make provision about services for provision of electronic signatures, electronic sales and other trust services, to make provision about disclosure of information to improve public service delivery, to make provision about the implementation of agreements on sharing information for law enforcement purposes, to make provision about the keeping and maintenance of registers of births and deaths, to make provision about the information standards for health and social care, to establish the Information Commission to make provision about oversight of biometric data and for connected purposes. So you can see that it's much more about those two or three little items that they were talking about, which are all about protecting us. So here's uh, Julian Lopez, the data minister, who's uh, launching this today in parliament, saying this bill will maintain the high standards of data protection that Britain's British people rightly expect, but will also help the people who are using our data to make our lives healthier, safer, and more prosperous. Brilliant. Uh, she goes on, that's because we've co-designed it with those people to ensure that our regulation reflects the way real people live their lives and run their businesses. Uh, so uh, by so by the policemen working with the criminals, uh, they've come up with a, a mm-hmm. great way to regulate the whole system. So let's just remind ourselves what this is about. I'm just going to very briefly run through this, um, You know, ensuring our new regime maintains data adequacy with the EU. Uh, but the key point here is for example, provide organizations with greater confidence about when they can process personal data without consent. Now, this is breaks very much the whole data protection uh, principles that we've seen up until this point, because everything is supposed to be with consent. Uh, but now we're allowing people to process personal data without consent. Uh, and of course, big focus on AI. Uh, and then, you know, all the benefits unleashing more scientific research and so on. Uh, but this one supporting international data sharing. And this is fundamentally what it's all about. This is an enabler and we'll explain what this is enabling in just a second. Uh, Just a quick reminder that the government is claiming that they're not gonna make digital identities mandatory, but of course this legislation provides one of the major foundations for uh, mandatory digital identity because although it's not mandatory in the sense that they're not making it uh, legislatively mandatory, They are, of course, making it mandatory uh, whenever you want to interface with the government at all on the gov.uk website. You've got to use their uh, one login service, or at least that's the way that it's going. Uh, And uh, we, of course, uh, must reinforce that they want to maintain trust in digital identity products uh, underpinned by legislation. Uh, And so there's going to be a whole infrastructure here of providers, certifying bodies, use case schemes, and then we finally get to employers, businesses, and other bodies that actually make uh, the, uh, the the data available to each other and so on. But look, this is what it's about, the, cro- the global cross-border privacy rules. So what this legislation is doing is putting in place the UK's part of what is a global data protection, uh, in inverted commas, because this is really about data sharing, not about data protection. But a global data protection system. Um, so this, uh, the first event, the first forum of the global cross-border privacy rules forum is happening in London uh, today. Uh, And, uh, well, (laughs) what can we say about it? The the, uh, parliamentary debate, this is what they said in the press release, coincides with the Global Cross-Border Privacy Rules Forum in London over four days of workshops. uh, The UK will lead global discussions between government officials, regulators, and privacy experts exploring how global privacy regimes can be more competitive and improve data transfers. Um, So what countries are involved, Canada, Japan, Republic of Korea, the Philippines, Singapore, uh, Chinese Taipei, uh, the China is not there, Russia is not there, of course. The United States is there, the UK and Australia has joined this as well. Uh, so there we go. That's happening today. And we
0: just add, and as a nation, we must be particularly vulnerable because of all of the um, health data that the National Health Service owns, which means that as a nation, we have a huge pool of captured very uh, personal medical data, which Uh, is clearly going to be shared in this mix. uh,
1: Absolutely, and we have to remember that, of course, it was the health data that was the first example of consent not being required because uh, that was where the UK government under the emergency coronavirus legislation decided that don't worry, uh, even if you've opted out of your health data being shared with third-party corporations, uh, that opt-out doesn't count when it comes to coronavirus. Uh, So any data related to uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, could be shared as widely as possible. Yep.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Well, probably from that segment, we must bring Mariana Spring on, on screen. And uh, a big thank you to one of our viewers who said, uh, Brian, you can't not show this outstanding headline from citizen journalists. And what is the headline? It's nobody... Does disinformation better than the BBC's anti-disinformation unit? Um, So I agree, a truly outstanding little headline there. But let's um, delve into the BBC and its uh, disinformation unit in a little bit more detail. And we'll approach it by the fact that we were kindly sent uh, a heads up about a freedom of information request, which was been sent into the BBC about the disinformation unit. And this did actually uh, prompt a response. And uh, let's have a little look at that response here. 13th of April, thank you for your request to the BBC at the 13th of March, seeking the following information under the Freedom of Imp- Information Act 2000. BBC Disinformation Unit, Slant Team, based UK. Please provide the following recorded information. One, the budget allocated for the last two financial years in UK. Two, how many people does the UK unit employ? Three, how much did the recent documentary cost? Elon Musk's Twitter storm, how much did that documentary cost to make? Now, the next uh, sentence is the interesting one. So let's uh, bring in the sharp eyed arrow and bring that up on screen. Please be advised that the BBC does not have a UK based information unit. We do, however, have specialist correspondents within news and current affairs who have a responsibility for reporting on issues relating to disinformation. Now, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about this in a minute, but let's uh, follow on through the response from the BBC. With regard to part three of your request, if held, the information you have requested is held for the purposes of art, journalism or literature. The FOI Act provides that the BBC is not obliged to disclose this type of information, and we will therefore not be disclosing any information requested by you on this occasion. Um, So this is twisting the rules in order to make sure that you can't ask uh, difficult questions about the BBC's disinformation unit. But it seems to me very clear the public should know where money is being spent within the BBC, particularly if it's a unit which says that it's upholding standards of of information. So I've labelled this one the BBC uses misinformation to hide data about its disinformation unit because I think that actually the uh, defence that they're trying to put forward is actually misinformation. We could probably discuss that more another time. Uh, But it goes on to say that the limited application of the FOI Act described above recognises that the BBC and other service broadcasters can preserve their independence by ensuring information about matters, including editorial decisions about programming and budgets allocated to such programmes, are not subject to undue public scrutiny. Um, so it seems that the BBC got pretty pretty worried about this and where, where it was going to actually take them. And, um, uh, well, where can we go from here? Let's have a look at what happens if you do a little bit of searching online. Uh, well, we can discover that the BBC launched a disinformation unit in India, but that doesn't appear to be BBC, because they've said, well, we don't have a UK-based unit. Yes, but not UK-based. this not This is in India. Um, we had a um, coronavirus unit set up um, by the, the government here, but of course the BBC was doing the same thing. Well, that's obviously not what we're talking about. The BBC's got an... Uh, sorry, the government's got its own anti-fake news unit. So the BBC doesn't... Well. Do they? Because if we start looking at careers, uh, we find that as part of BBC World Service, as part of BBC News, they're recruiting for journalists in the BBC disinformation unit. But presumably because it's BBC World Service, that's not the BBC.
1: It's not UK based, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And therefore... Um, no, they don't have a unit. So very strange that the BBC should want a unit in India, for example. It would want one connected with the world service. But all, oh, please don't imagine uh, television license payers that the BBC would have its own. Um, it have its own. Uh, disinformation unit, and you found this individual,
1: uh, Mike. Well, this, this is this is where it gets a bit strange, because although you could say that Rebecca Skippage here works for BBC Monitoring, and she's clearly UK-based because she's writing this uh, this information, this uh, opinion piece, this research for Oxford University, and the research that she wrote is called Is Public Service Media Doing Enough to Tackle Disinformation? Now, if we look at her little bio there, it says, Rebecca Skippage established and leads the BBC's disinformation team, and is an editor for the BBC-wide anti-disinformation unit. The team covers and uncovers global disinformation trends, verifies and debunks viral social media content, and creates digital material to help people spot and avoid fake news. And she's currently with BBC Monitoring. Now, BBC Monitoring claims that it monitors global social media, so it's not focused on the UK, they claim. But of course, that's what 77th Brigade claimed as well, Brian. And, and uh, then when it actually comes to it, we discover that 77th Brigade is absolutely operational in the UK. And so my question then is, is it in fact the case that uh, the, the BBC uh, is running disinformation units in the UK just as it is abroad? Well, I I would say it must be so.
0: But in one hand, this lady's part of a team, but it says very clearly on this piece on her that she's part of the BBC-wide anti-disinformation unit. David, there's a frown on your forehead. Perhaps I could say to you, um, with your uh, professional engineering background, your analytical skills, do you think the BBC might be lying here?
2: Could be. Uh, I I was just enjoying, the reason I was frowning, I was just uh, enjoying um, Mariana Springs' um, output on the BBC, the most latest of which is an article on the ninjas fighting climate change denial on Twitter. So this is a group of 25 people who have decided to report anyone who has a different opinion to try and get them banned from Twitter. It's noble exercises like that that Mariana cheers on. And of course... The BBC themselves have taken many, many years ago a strategic decision not to put the other side of the argument over climate change on their channel. They are suppressing it. Um, It's not because the argument's not valid. It's not because the argument's not sound or has at least important points to make. No, it's a political reason, a political decision to suppress viewpoints, just the same as the political decision in Dundee by the council venue was to suppress the Scottish Union for Education because their viewpoint was not the correct political colour. It's, it's as simple as that. It's, it's, it's a state, it's a political machine, making sure it can't be challenged by trying to control the airways.
1: Indeed. I think Mark had a comment. Welcome to the programme, Mark.
5: Yeah, real quick. Uh this reminds me of a program I just gave in Austin after I cover, covered that independent national Convention, and I gave one on the mass media cartel, and I argued, and I think it's a sound argument that if you have a, a unit like the BBC that has the tax and has all that billions of dollars of billions of pounds of public money behind it, they should be required to be absolutely open about all their processes, and in that correspondence, you were showing that they're not, that they're saying we don't have to tell you this. Um, that is absolutely antithetical to the idea that they get all that public money and yet they turn around and, and have all these exclusions. It's contradictory, it's wrong, and that's one of the fundamental things that needs to change or they should have their license yanked. It's that simple.
1: Can
0: uh, I, I, I just say, Mark, couldn't agree more? Welcome to the BBC. What a
1: vile organization. <laughs> A multi-billion vile organisation. Right, let's uh, let's move abroad then and to Sudan, and uh, we'll hear some uh, footage from uh, apparently what's been going on over the last couple of days. Uh, helicopters shut down. Certainly, the uh, uh, <coughs> uh, Sudanese, the rapid uh, reaction forces, uh, claiming that they have been shooting down uh, or downing uh, helicopters over the last couple of days. Uh, we'll see tanks on the streets and so on. In a couple of seconds. Um, so look, this is an extremely uh, complex situation over there. It's been going on for a very long time. Uh, we'll try to simplify it slightly, but you can see the type of thing that's uh, that's happening. So, uh, well, everybody should know where Sudan is just south of Egypt here. Uh, we've got the Red, red Sea on the right hand side uh, and two main f- uh, factions that work here, the government forces uh, that are in red and the so-called rapid reaction forces that are in blue. And this is the uh, countryside that they seem to be occupying mainly and the main front there. Um, And the question is, why has this all kicked off right at this moment? Um, So let's just uh, uh, remind ourselves that the current government is not really a a democratic government, of course, uh, but it uh, came about as a result of a coup in 2021. Um, So the head of Sudan's armed forces, Lieutenant General, Abdel Fattah al-Bernan, Claims the military coup on the 25th of October 2021 was to protect the transition of democracy because political infighting was stalling progress on establishing crucial crucial institutions. Said Chatham House in, in uh, November 2021. Now they were very much wanting to reverse that military coup because, of course, uh, the West wanting to have control over the government of Sudan. Um, so. Uh, The key problem is that the current military junta there were attempting or have been attempting to hold uh, elections for quite some time. um, And they said that they were going to hold elections in 2023. Uh, So this might be part of the reason that this is kicking off at the moment. Uh, The concern for the West uh, is that uh, there would be Islamist uh, government would be the result of uh, these elections. And that would be viewed as being undemocratic and against the international rules based order. Uh, but let's just uh, have a look at some of the, the stuff that's been going on over the last couple of years. Uh, I mean, there has been ebbs and flows as the cradle puts it uh, over Sudan-Israeli relations over the years. Uh, we've got UAE wanting to put $6 billion in to uh, construct ports. And this is really probably what it's all about is the ports at the end of the day, because China and Russia, of course, have a pretty large influence uh, in the country. Um, now, the UN Security Council uh, in March uh, attempted to put an arms embargo on Sudan. Uh, Russia and China abstained from that for various reasons. But here's what I'm going to suggest as the main reason that this uh, thing has kicked off right at this moment. Uh, and that is that uh, the, uh, I believe, Sudan port itself, um, Russia has been aiming to use that as a base for its naval as a naval base for itself, they have finally had agreement for that. I just want to highlight this Middle East Eye article In this. The headline is, Shadow Games in the Red Sea, a scramble for Sudan's ports intensifies. And the subheadline is, Fishermen tell Middle East Eye they were attacked by Russian fighters off Sudan's coast as Moscow, Washington, others vie for power and profit. I just want to let you know what the basis of this claim that it was Russian uh, forces, uh, Russian fighters... Uh, we were attacked by some foreigners while we were fishing near Agig Port. Uh, is the quote? Uh, they were white, and I believe they were Russian because I saw Russians in other parts of the region, and they looked very similar. The fisherman said. So that is the uh, the totality of the identification that the uh, attacks were from Russians. But anyway. Uh, the sudan military has finished its review of the russian red sea base deal and they intend to allow russia to set up its uh, its base or at least they had intended that uh, right up until now uh, and just by coincidence uh, this insurrection or if you want to call it that has kicked off uh, just at that particular moment uh, you consider that a Coincidence?
0: No, no. This is uh, this is uh, fermented trouble, which of course the West and the US, in particular, is so um, good. good at. Yeah, good at carrying out. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to Ukraine. And I make no apologies for coming back to the BBC because this is where the media spin is taking place. So if we have a look at war in Ukraine from the BBC today, the one thing they're not talking about is the war in Ukraine, because, of course, on the battlefield, uh, the Russian advance in Bakhmut continues, horrific casualties uh, on the Ukrainian side, Um, regularly 300 men dying per day, some days up to 350, and there is no doubt that the Russians are going to fully occupy uh, Bakhmut, which is a strategic city because it then leaves relatively um, easy defences for them to move on to, where their newer weapon systems um, will destroy the Ukrainian forces who simply have trenches to hide in as opposed to uh, building structures. So um, the BBC very happy not to report Ukrainian casualties because of course if they were to do so it would start to uh, take the lid off what's really happening in this war and hopefully bring it to a close as people are outraged. So if we have a look at another BBC See, excuse me, headline. What the leaked Pentagon uh, documents reveal. Now, this is from a couple of um, days ago, but if we have a look at the eight key takeaways, um, excuse me, um, it says um, here that. Uh, Russia's infighting over the Ukraine dead. So we can't talk about the Ukraine dead without bringing in the fact that there's a Russian problem to it. We can't report the Ukrainian dead without trying to make out the Russians have been spinning this by possibly uh, manipulating some of the release documents. And if we go back to earlier BBC articles, which was t- talking about the uh, leaked documents, uh, there's quite a lot of dialogue in the casualties, but of course it's the Russians that have suffered the horrific casualties between 189 and a half and 223 casualties. Uh, Ukraine much less, 124, 500 and 131,000. Well, of course these cannot be true, and the key to that is the ratio of shelling. Uh, where the Russians are out shelling the ukrainians consistently six or more to one and the Russian shelling has continued unabated day and night for weeks and months but the BBC spinning all of this information creating the disinformation so that the UK public and indeed the world is not to know the truth about the massive Ukrainian casualties what are those casualties? The best figures that are being put forward at the moment are well between 200,000 and 300,000. And many observers are saying the Ukrainian casualties are beyond 300,000. But um, what's the UK doing at the moment? Well, the UK is busy training shopkeepers and poets and other good people in Ukraine uh, to go and fight. And here is the British Ministry of Defence with a little film clip. Uh, where the Ukrainians, having received their minimal military training, are being waved off in their coaches leaving uh, the Ministry of Defence property. I find this astonishing. Is this happening for every tranche of Ukrainians that arrive in UK for training? It looks like something out of a film or it's the school year leaving. But the reality is that these poor people who have barely received any substantial training, are going to fight in a pretty horrific war, which we'll come on to in a moment. Uh, But let's have a think about the people. And I had to bring this on screen, a pretty appalling picture from the Ministry of Defence, because if we have a look, we've got our old friend, the Admiral, Sir Tony Radikin. He's changed from his sailor suit into the combat tough gear, which is remarkably clean because... None of these men are going to be fighting on that battlefield. I find this quite obscene, at least present yourself to the camera in the proper uniform which you wear. Uh, But what are these men doing? Well, they're playing at troops. So where are the young Ukrainians going to be sent? These are some uh, film clips which will just run on screen showing shelling. And the issue is that wherever there's Ukrainian forces, the Russians are shelling them or using rocket, multiple launch rocket systems against them. Uh, in the wooded areas, the Russians are particularly using thermobaric weapons, which are having uh, a shocking effect on Ukrainians. And uh, the Russians showing signs of wanting to use these systems in the built-up areas. But they've got to uh, obviously pay attention to Um, uh, civilians who are still in many of the areas, but they don't bother returning sniper fire, they simply shelter the uh, the uh, basic den of the snipers themselves so that's the reality of the battlefield and that's why those ukrainians are being sent off by the british ministry of defence to die and if we have a look at these little film clips of ukrainian forces speaking out we get another picture of what's happening now this is um Uh, Simply text on screen. I'm going to do my best to talk the audience uh, through it if you're just listening into UK Column News. But let's see where we go. This is entitled Citizens of Ukraine. And we've got a gathering of military men from the 127th Brigade, 228th Battalion of the Ukrainian forces in the Kharkiv area. They're saying, unfortunately, there's a situation in which it's decided to dispose of the whole battalion after a year of war. They want to annihilate us. And they're talking about their senior officers by giving us bad orders by criminal schemes within the unit and the brigade and the battalion. Um, The soldiers are expressing a collective mistrust uh, to the leadership of the whole of the 228th Battalion. Uh, including the 127th Brigade. Uh, They're saying that is the situation. Another man steps forward. And uh, what does he say? He says, we address the people of Ukraine, support us because a lot of our brothers died. A lot are wounded. Our leadership sends us as meat, calling us special forces through deception not providing any information, no information to personnel. Through deception, they get us to Bakhmud, classified as special forces, but there's been no preparation, not having any effing heavy equipment, no evacuation of the wounded. Commanders are not inclined to save the lives of the soldiers. It's the opposite. So this is pretty serious stuff that these men are talking about, and the losses are horrific. If we go on to this one, where a gentleman is talking, he says he's foreman, second grade, uh, gives his name. He was born in 1963. He was a volunteer of the 35th Brigade 3rd Battalion, uh, First Assault Division 8th Company. Uh, He wants to talk to politicians and president of Ukraine. He says you passed a law according to which the family of a missing soldier is not eligible for compensation payments, even if there are witnesses that a soldier died. The reason why a soldier becomes missing, he says, is uneducated. I think that's unknown. and unprofessional planning of assault. As a result, when retreating under mortar fire, it's only theoretically possible to evacuate the body, but if there's the direct hit, there's nothing left of a person. So he's questioning the rules from the government. He says, Two days ago, we went to recover men lying on the ground since November. You can't imagine what we were recovering. Now it's getting warm. What will happen to them? Nobody knows. Is it fair towards Uh, the dead and their families. So what this man is saying is effectively that if you're classified as missing in action, your family don't receive anything. And uh, the Government in Ukraine is particularly happy with this situation. Let's look at the next one where we get a little bit more understanding of what's going on. So this is a soldier being interviewed. And uh, what does he say? He says, I want to draw attention to the situation in our brigade, the 110th Brigade 3rd Battalion. Our commanders forbid the evacuation of dead bodies. So the people are counted as missing. Why is this done? You ask me. In your brigade, he's being questioned. Uh, The thing is, the salaries and the bonuses, they're not paid directly by the Ministry of Finance or the Ministry of Defence, but they're coming through the battalion commander who who distributes them. And there's no will to do this effectively. So for some time, three months, They're counted as missing, but their salaries and bonuses are paid. After that time, this money is redistributed to other people. They think it's some kind of fraud. So we've got an appalling situation of massive casualties. The dead are not recovered. They're left to rot on the battlefield, and people are classified as missing in action uh, because ultimately the money and the salaries can be misappropriated. And uh, just one more to ram this point home. None of this, of course, being reported by the West. So we've got another man. He starts out, glory to Ukraine. I got a notification for my salary. No big surprise. And what he starts to tell is that three months in a row, he's only getting paid about $13.7 a month. Uh, So $2,000 is missing. This is happening to other soldiers and he's asking where the money goes. Uh, but our leaders only ask, when do you move out to fight? So they're not interested in paying the soldiers, but they want them to go and fight. But they're paying the soldiers a pittance. And this man is asking the audience again, where does all this money go? Mm. So this is the appalling situation. And of course, the BBC is not going to report any of this because it shows Ukraine in turmoil. And these horrific casualties on the battlefield, whilst other people are making gain from the salaries of the dead soldiers.
1: Okay, if uh, you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please uh, head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share material you find on the various platforms, including ukcolumn.org and UKColumnExtracts.co.uk.
0: OK, thank you for that. Well, we're delighted to say that tomorrow at one o'clock we'll be streaming out the interview with Andrew Bridgen, MP. Encourage as many people as possible to hear what this man had to say. And I will stress that one of the reasons that we did this interview was to give Andrew Bridgen the opportunity to speak freely to members of the public. Uh, Clearly, he's being denied this by much larger media streams, including the BBC.
1: A quick reminder of uh, the Alternative View virtual event taking place on Sunday. This coming Sunday, Brian is hosting it, Pippa King, John Kitson, Mark Anderson taking part in that as well, David Dubine. So that live stream is on the 23rd. If you uh, head over to alternativeview.co.uk, you can find out how to join that and, uh, again, your support much needed there because, of course, that's helping to kickstart the, the proper live event uh, in uh, November. Uh, in October. October, sorry. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and finally, just a quick reminder uh, that Patrick is going to be speaking at uh, Trafalgar Square on Saturday, this coming Saturday, 12 p.m. Uh, David Clues, now McRae, uh, Anthony Weber and Peter Ford also speaking. Not our war, keep us out is uh, is the event. Uh, get along to that if you possibly can.
0: Okay. And David, you've got a few words to say about your excellent interview with the banker.
2: Well, this is from uh, a former banker, Alison Macleod. and the interview's up on the UK Column website. Uh, I, I picked out a quote from his most recent article on uh, gold money, for which he's a chief researcher. He writes, all the signs point to termination of the world's fiat currency regime, and with it there will be a radical change in central banking. Given that central banks in the Western alliance are all technically bankrupt themselves, their survivability and that of their currencies is questionable. So that, uh, that interview explores all these issues, and I uh, hope people will check it out.
1: Uh, well, perfect uh, quote there, David, because that uh, brings us to the to the IMF, uh, who were, have been hosting their spring meetings in Washington, D.C. over the last few days. Uh, here's some uh, footage from it. It's all very, very exciting. Um, and uh, well, what were they announcing? Well, first of all, they announced on the first day of this, alongside the Digital Currency Monetary Authority. Uh, The official launch of the uh, international central bank digital currency that, uh, well, they're saying will strengthen the monetary sovereignty of participating central banks and will comply with the recent crypto assets policy recommendations proposed by the IMF. So uh, who's pushing this? Well, it's this organization, the DCMA, this is Digital Currency Monetary Authority. This has come out of a consultation by the Bank for International Settlements. Uh, And uh, let's see what they have launched. They have launched the Universal Monetary Unit. Uh, The Unicoin network is powered by the Universal Monetary Unit, UME, UMU, sorry, AKA Unicoin. Uh, Universal Monetary Unit is an innovation in store of value cryptographic cash. It's a continuous demand money commodity leveraging monetary policy to minimize high volatility and ensure continuous market demand. Universal Monetary Unit can be adopted as an official currency for settling trade payments and as a central bank cash reserve currency to mitigate against seasonal and systemic systemic local currency depreciation. Uh, Universal Monetary Unit can be purchased in the local currency of each national economy, strengthening central bank monetary sovereignty. Uh, Central banks can enter into a bilateral agreement with Universal Monetary Unit if they prefer to hold UMU on their central bank digital currency ledger. So, David... Uh, this is very exciting news.
2: I'm going to hold back uh, my investment until they launch Pan Galactic Monetary Units because I, I don't think Universal's quite big enough. Uh, this strikes me as a little bit desperate. All the Eastern Central Banks are buying what's that stuff called? Oh yes, gold uh, at a rate never seen uh, since the Bretton Woods Agreement, 1944. Um, I'm not so sure that they're going to buy this.
1: Well, well, David, you've got to get excited here because banks can attach SWIFT codes and bank accounts to UMU, UMU digital currency wallet and transactions SWIFT like cross-border payments over digital currency rails, uh, completely bypassing the corresponding banking system at best-priced wholesale foreign exchange rates and with instantaneous real-time settlement. I mean, gold can't do that.
2: Yeah, it's called counterparty risk, though, and gold doesn't have any if you hold it. Uh, and and th- that that was actually quite a little interesting description because there are many uh, parts of the foreign exchange system which are essentially dark already and are not being properly reported and which constitute huge risks in the entire system. Is this going to be another one? Yes.
1: Yes. and. and- People should not mis- misunderstand my sarcasm here this is not good for us no and I'm, I'm sure that
0: unicorn is supposed to uh, you know stick in people's heads as unicorn I don't think this was I don't think this was accidental
1: quite possibly so where does that take us uh human rights based approach to criminal conduct David
2: yes um, this is what's coming down the pike in terms of um, legal innovation. So this comes from an International Commission of Jurists based in Switzerland but actually operating all across the world, involving people from all across the world. Um, um, The process that's gone on here started in 2018 uh, with the UN, UN Programme on HIV AIDS, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the International Commission of Jurists. Uh, They were inspired, they convened an expert meeting. So the experts got together to discuss the role of jurists in addressing the harmful human rights impact of criminal laws, prescribing sexual and reproductive health rights, consensual sexual activity, gender identity, gender expression, HIV non-disclosure, exposure and transmission, drug use and the possession of drugs for personal use. So following this expert meeting, um, the International Commission of Jurists produced successive drafts of the principles and circulated them to a wide range of experts. So I hope you're clear that this has been done by experts. And it starts off okay. Principle one, no one may be held criminally liable for any act or omission that did not constitute a crime, a criminal offence under national or international law at the time when such conduct occurred. Fair enough. Criminal law must not prescribe any Act or omission in terms that are vague, imprecise, arbitrary or overly broad, <clears throat> such as the Scottish law on um, breach of the peace, which is anything. You could be breaching the peace right now, you would never know. Um, so that's fair enough. Principle two, harm. Criminal law may only prescribe conduct that inflicts or and substantial harm to the fundamental rights and freedoms of others or to certain uh, f- um, fundamental public interests, national security, safety, order, health, and public morals. Fair enough. But as you get into it, it gets much darker. When we get down to principle 15, abortion. So this is what they're trying to bring in. Criminal law may not prescribe abortion. Abortion must be taken entirely out of the purview of criminal law, including for having, assisting, aiding with or providing an abortion or abortion-related medical services services, or providing evidence-based abortion-related information. And it goes on to say that it must be, no, the criminal offence must be applied to this. So this is to legalise all abortion up to birth without question. And they're trying to push this the world over. Principle sixteen: consensual sexual conduct. This one won't surprise you. We've been waiting for this for a long time. Sexual conduct involving persons below the domestically prescribed minimum age of consent to sex may, uh, may be consensual. In fact, if not in law. In this context, the enforcement of criminal law should reflect the rights and capacities of the persons under 18 years of age to make decisions about engaging in consensual sexual conduct. That basically legalizes paedophilia and grooming. Principle 17, sex work. Uh, The exchange of sexual services between consenting adults for money, goods or services um, is, again, taken out of the criminal law. They're legalizing prostitution. It also says criminal law may not prescribe the conduct of third parties who directly or indirectly for receipt of financial or material benefit under fair conditions without coercion force or abuse of authority or fraud facilitate and manage or organise or communicate or advertise or provide information about or provide premises or rent for the purposes of exchange of sexual activities. Pimping, right? They are legalising pimping. Um, Principle 20 uh, legalises or seeks to legalise Um, all drugs of all sorts for personal use. Principle 21. And no one may be held criminally liable for engaging in life-sustaining economic activities in public spaces, begging, panhandling, trading, touting, vending, hawking, or for engaging in life-sustaining activities such as sleeping, eating, preparing food, washing clothes, sitting, or performing hygiene-related activities, washing, urinating, and defecating, Right, so the point I'm, I want to sink in here is that this is looking at taking apart everything that makes civilized civilization civilized, and taking it completely out of the criminal law, making it possible to prohibit it, and and essentially looking to turn everything into the worst parts of LA. Um, the people who came up with this, as I, I say, it's a big international community. Uh, high up on the list there's one gentleman from Britain, Sir Nicholas Dusan Bratsa. it's not a British name but his family came from Serbia at the end of the First World War and the present is Robert Goldman who is uh American Jewish gentleman um, now a point I want to make here, this comes, this is not new, this comes from a thing called critical legal theory, part of the critical legal, critical theory of uh, sort of neo-Marxist, cultural Marxist ideas. We'll come to that in a moment. Um, So here we see Cornell Law School uh, define this. Uh, Critical legal studies is a theory which states that law is necessarily intertwined with social issues, um, stating the law has an an inherent social bias. Proponents uh, believe that the law supports the interests of those who create the law and um, and supports a power dynamic which favours the historically privileged. So it's all about power and privilege. And Cornell uh, Law School continues on the influences underpinning this. Um, it, it was influenced to a great extent by European philosophers such as Karl Marx, Marx Weber, Marx Horkheimer, Antonio Gramsci and Michel Foucault. So it is cultural Marxism. Uh, it has captured that particular organisation. But this has been launched by the UN on March the 8th, International Women's Day, um, to push all the nations of the world in this direction. So this is early, but expect to see these sorts of ideas being pushed in our own parliaments two, three, four years from now.
0: Uh, David, can I just say, doing a little bit of research while you were talking there, I see that this organisation actually goes back to 1952, uh, claims that uh, they were standing up to concerns about human rights um, likely to suffer under um, communism and the Cold War. So that's a remarkable change in um, target from the Cold War period to where it's now aiming. I wonder whether that's a coincidence or not.
2: Well, it makes you wonder who won.
0: (laughs) Indeed. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, let's bring in uh, Mark. Mark, thank you very much for being with us. And um, you've got a variety of information to share with us today, Um, but uh, you're going to start off with James Rogowski.
5: Yeah, he is the LA-based researcher, as we know, that's been looking into the WHO even more than I have. Uh, I get a lot of uh things on my plate of course and that has to do with the world pandemic treaty and the parallel track for the international health regulations first created in 1969 uh, updated in 2005 and now those IHR regs are being updated again and what James is putting out here uh this is from his Substack uh website james com, um is a petition via the UK Parliament, a a mechanism that's available, he's saying. And what it says here is if you live in the UK or if you know someone who does, please help spread the word about this petition. If you live somewhere other than the United Kingdom, please help spread the word, et cetera. Starting date was April 3rd, but the ending date is October 3rd, 2023. It says Tess Laurie, a co-founder of the World Council for Health, has submitted a petition that was accepted by the UK government on the 3rd of April, 2023, just a couple of weeks ago. And it gives a link there. Now moving on, the petition is very simple. Hold a parliamentary vote, which we've just been talking about that kind of thing, on whether to reject the amendments to the International Health Regulations of 2005. We are concerned that the parliament has not discussed and will not have a say on the 307 proposed amendments to the IHR regs and amendments to five articles of the IHR that were adopted by the 75th World Health Assembly on the 27th of May 2022. Uh, here's an emphasis: the amendments that were adopted on the 27th of May last year have not been debated in or vote or in or voted on by the Parliament. Pardon me, the UK has the authority to reject them under article sixty one of the international health regulations, but any such rejection must be within eighteen months of their adoption so there's there's a a condition there that could easily be overlooked uh, kind of winding up Parliament must be given the opportunity to vote on whether to reject the amendments that have already been adopted and also the three hundred and seven proposed amendments that are currently being negotiated by UK delegates to the 76th World Health Assembly. The UK has not proposed any of those 307 amendments. So with the um, World Pandemic Treaty target date coming up uh, to try and wind it up in May of 2024 and the IHR regs on a parallel track, and James James Rogowski, excuse me, has often said that the regs are where the teeth really are. The pandemic treaty is problematic, but much of the tyranny, the health tyranny, likely would come through these international health regulations. Anyway, uh, this final slide here on this segment, Article 61 of the international health regulations gives each of the 194 member nations the authority to reject the amendments that were adopted back in May last year. But their rejection letter needs to be sent to the WHO before the end of November 2023 and I believe that's all the slides for this particular subject but at any rate so that's a very uh, cogent and concise warning from James Roguski and I looked into it of course I I confirm and concur that people need to be aware of these mechanisms and exercise them if they're so inclined and uh now on a, on another tack here but Kind of within the realm of COVID, of course, the World Health, pa- the World Pandemic Treaty, is coming out of the COVIDocracy, the COVID crackdown that we had, and now they're looking at bird flu and some sort of fungus, and other so-called global threats. Uh, with some authorities saying the bird flu could be even worse than COVID-19, uh, these are the th- these are the things that would give uh, uh, urgency and substance to a new World Pandemic Treaty and these regulations. there's There's got to be a threat. There's got to be a monster to destroy or there's no incentive for any of this. But now we have uh, reports. This is actually from LifeSite News earlier this year, Uh, going back to LifeSite News there. um, I don't know if you guys have reported this already. I picked this up uh, kind of stumbling across it. Ireland sees 42% more deaths in the past two months compared to pre-COVID levels. Uh, There's a sub- quote here, or yeah, subquote, when we see death rates 3,000% higher, I think it means percent, in a small six-week six period than they were in a six-week period pre-COVID, we can't have the government standing idly by, quote unquote, said Deputy Piyadar Toybin if I'm saying that name right. Yeah, just to so clarify, uh,
1: Mark, that, that's, that's uh, actual numbers, because, so 3,000 yeah. extra deaths, not 3,000%.
5: Okay, yeah, it says death rates 3,000 higher. It it, it was a little misleading. Thank you for that. Um, Anyway, moving on, I believe there's one more slide for this. And this comes from the Irish Examiner. Here we have an example of the Irish mainstream media. Funerals delayed as increase in the number of deaths puts mortuaries under pressure. So it's not just the conspiracy theorists at LifeSite News that are saying the uh, number of deaths is very unusually high in Ireland. It's the mainstream press. But this article goes to great lengths to avoid mentioning even the notion that the COVID jabs could play any role in this. Uh, like most mainstream media, they paint it as something more or less inexplicable and ultimately unexplainable. So this just gives more uh, um, uh, concern with what uh, James Roguski is talking about, um, uh if we can uh defeat the world pandemic treaty and and put that on ice and uh get an honest look at these numbers then uh we would um uh you know kind of un how would you say dislodge that mechanism that is um uh using covid a, a, as a uh, um, springboard to get into the next pandemic and then they're trying to say of course that COVID-19, the disease, uh, the actual disease is what's going to cause these deaths when it's actually the jabs, that would completely take the wind uh, the wind out of the sails of this movement to create this treaty. Uh, and what's going on in Ireland simply needs to be unmasked so we can see that it's very likely the jabs and not COVID itself.
1: Yeah. Okay, thanks, uh, Mark. So, uh, David, let's move to Scotland and uh, the continuing
2: Sturgeon saga. <laughs> Oh, it's a saga, yes. I keep trying to spare you from more of this, but there's there's, just too much coming forward and it's too interesting. Back in 2021, during lockdown, um, the National Executive Committee, the governing body of uh, the SNP, were having meetings via Zoom. Um, And someone recorded one and this has been leaked to the press now. The background to this is the SNP is in financial meltdown as a party. Um, there's many, many questions about where the money went, including to camper vans and such like. And here we've got Nicola Sturgeon in this management meeting, the top level management meeting of the party, addressing the issue. But it's very interesting what she says.
3: body continuously for 20 years or so. I've been on this body when the party has frankly been teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. Um, The party's never been in a stronger financial position than it is right now. um, And that's a reflection of our strength and our membership. So just a bit of context for us all to remember. Secondly, I'm not going to get into the details. That's for Douglas. That's what he's elected to do. And of course, this body is the governing body of the party. But, you know, just be very careful, uh, all of us, about suggestions that there are problems with the party's finances, because we depend on donors to donate. There are no uh, reasons for people to be concerned about the party's finances, and all of us need to be careful about not suggesting that there is. Um, and lastly, we've got to be careful as an NEC. We don't reap what we sow. If we have leaks from this body, as I said earlier on, it limits the ability for open, free, and frank discussion. Uh, this body is all, and this is the governing body of the party, with the responsibility to pass a budget um, and. If we so, in all the years I've been on it, there has been good quality, uh, detailed financial information given by national treasurers, and that's how it should be. But if there are leaks, as with everything else, it, that gets more difficult to do, so everybody has to be very clear uh, about that. And you know, if I was a betting person, and just to be clear, Alison, this is not directed at you in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but if I was a betting person. I would bet we'll see the statement that's just been read out out in public this afternoon. Um, so I hope I'm wrong about that, and it might do a great uh, benefit for the confidence we all have in the discussions we can have in this NEC if I am proved wrong about that, and I'm sure I won't be the only one looking to see whether that is the case or not.
2: So did you enjoy that sort of school type tone at, to, to the governing body of the party Basically, stop, stop suggesting that there are problems and stop leaking information. Otherwise, we simply won't tell you what's going on. What did you, what did you make of that, gentlemen, before we move on?
1: Well, well it took a bit longer than, than the afternoon, but it still got leaked.
2: <laughs> well, yes. If your if you're warning not to leak is itself getting leaked, things are bad. Uh, and things are bad. So here we go. Pressure's now growing on Sturgeon to quit the SNP. Um, in fact, uh, there's an ex- there's an expectation. She's not actually going to turn up this, this week in Parliament. Um, but there's an expectation she'll now quit uh, sooner rather than later. And Hamza Yusuf is facing demands to suspend her. Um, this comes as uh, he was forced to deny that uh, the party was close to bankruptcy. Um, Colin Beatty, who is the Treasurer and also an MSP, said there was an exodus of 30,000 members, a reduction in donors, and the rising legal costs linked to police investigation, and the party was having difficulty balancing the books. So that's pretty bad. Um, In the background, though, they're still coming up with policies, and they are continually awful. So here we see uh, the new Finance Minister. um, Shona Robison and um, her latest idea is communism light. Everyone in Scotland's to get £25,000 a year whether they do anything or not. This is going to be funded by um, an estimated £38 billion in additional taxation from any Scot who's actually productive. Um, that is a, just a recipe for failure on a national scale. Now, this is all a bit grim. I thought I'd give you a laugh. The United Kingdom Defence Journal thought they would do an April Fool's joke. Um, so, what they said is that the Royal Navy landing ship, um, HMS Bulwark, will be repurposed for ferry duties because of the crisis in Caledonian McBrain's ferry fleet, right? And that was burned by Avril Fuller on April the 1st, 2023. And didn't we all have a chuckle? Yeah. Not so funny now. Sunday Times, um, this this week, this last weekend, the Ministry of Defence has called in to tackle the ferry crisis. The military chiefs are asked to help out after ageing vessels are taken in for lengthy repairs. And in an unusual plea, one of the SNPs, most senior MPs, has spoken to military chiefs, urging them to, prov- to provide a short-term solution to the collapse of parts of the ferry network after vessels were taken in for in- in for repairs lasting at least six weeks. The move by Ian Blackford, former leader of the Nationalists at Westminster, comes after warnings that Highland companies are at risk of going bust if there's further disruption. And just for those of you who are not lucky enough to live or travel in these beautiful parts of the world, I've got a little map that shows you the ferry and the implications for the economy of the Ardnamurchan Peninsula. All right, so here we have uh, the little white line there, that's the Corran Ferry. It goes across the Narrows, it's about 500 metres, and the detour outlined in red, that's 42 miles of Highland roads, it takes an hour and 15 minutes. Um, and of course, that's on to a very long journey times to get out to the Ardnermochon, and this is going to be critical for the people trying to live and work there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh- What can we say to that? It's difficult to comment, isn't it? Um, I think the answer is bollards. Let's have a look at this little film clip.
4: So this is the famous bollard. Somebody tried to set fire to it. They did something with petrol and it kind of all went up in flames one night. It's been run over, it's been smashed up, it's been lifted up, it's been taken away, it's it's had all kinds of adventures.
0: It's been the subject of this kind of sometimes literal fury from drivers who find this bollard blocking their way.
4: Yes, um, I am quite surprised at the vitriol that a bit of plastic has had.
0: So if you, if you get into that article, one of the key things is that the uh, bollard and the planters have actually turned communities against, against each other. And I'm going to say that was the real objective in the first place. But this is reality of move towards 15-minute cities and control of uh, traffic in, in uh, neighbourhoods. If we just come to the article itself, it gives us a bit more detail Um, Notice that it's by Justin Rowlett, the climate editor. Uh, Schemes designed to get traffic off the streets are turning neighbours against each other. In Oxford, the introduction of these government-funded low-traffic neighbourhoods has led to vandalism and angry confrontations, something the BBC loves, of course. I've been to meet locals there who believe the scheme will reduce congestion and pollution and others who want the freedom to drive wherever they want. So BBC very happy because, of course, uh, it's got people against each other. But in the article, it's got this sub-headline, Sinister Global Plot. But the opposition to the introduction of traffic restrictions has become increasingly vocal. And it's... um, Says that there's a flurry of claims on social media that the restrictions are evidence of a sinister global plot to limit our freedom to travel. Now, I just want to bring in against that BBC article this the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government National Planning Policy Framework. This is from 2021. Uh, This is the introduction. It says the National Planning Policy Framework sets out the government's planning policies for England and how these should be applied. It provides a framework uh, within which locally prepared plans for housing and other development can be produced. And if we go to two... It gets interesting because it says the purpose of the planning system is to contribute to the achievement of sustainable development at a very high level. The objective of sustainable development can be summarised as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. At a similarly high level, members of the United Nations, including the UK, have agreed to pursue the 17 Global Goals for Sustainable Development in the period to 2030. Now, this is not um, what we can't say, is that this document absolutely covers the issue of the plastic bollard. But the point we're making is that the moment you get into planning rules for a variety of things across UK, this is no longer to do with debate in Parliament and what constituents want. It's all down to what the... uh, Uh, the United Nation wants with its sustainable development goals. So think about that. Do we really need Westminster anymore? Uh,
1: And of course, uh, doing things sustainably is uh, coming into every aspect of lives, including how we dispose of ourselves, Mark. Yes,
5: yes, indeed. A little little while back today, David was talking about how life is being cheapened. Abortion completely decriminalized no matter what level, uh, no matter what stage in life uh, through some Swiss agency. And yes, uh, climate change must be adhered to. We must doff our hats to the god of climate change. And now, although this item seems to qualify for extra, it's just bizarre enough to kind of go anywhere. Uh, Turning bodies into soil. This is from a publication called The Week, which, by the way, uh, is based in London and New York, I believe. And turning bodies into soil subhead as cemeteries run short on space, and we heard about cemeteries being affected by all these deaths in Ireland, this spike in deaths, some people are turning to human composting to dispose of their remains. I'll let that float for a second. And the week dutifully defines it. What is human composting? It is an environmentally friendly way of burying people uh, that's just great in which human remains are turned into rich soil also known as natural origin re- okay. organic reductions excuse me natural organic reduction the process takes roughly 2 months to decompose a body producing soil which loved ones might use to plant flowers vegetables or trees in 2019 Washington became the first state that be the Northwest Washington to allow human composting and hundreds of people have chosen chosen this means of disposing of their remains. Oregon, Colorado, Vermont, and New York followed with their own legalization. California, of course, plans to allow human composting by 2027 as urban cemeteries around the world near capacity. And we have to ask ourselves why that's happening. Cremation rates have soared, but many people concerned about climate change and the environment don't want their incinerated remains, heaven forbid, to release hundreds of pounds of carbon dioxide and toxic chemicals. A 2022 survey by the National Funeral Directors Association found that 60% of Americans are open to green end of life arrangements. Uh, Any comments, gentlemen?
0: Uh, well, one of our sharp-eyed viewers has mentioned the film Soylent Green, which, uh, if you haven't watched it, may care to do that, where, of course, recycled bodies have another purpose. But, uh,
1: well, it is talking about growing vegetables. Uh,
0: exactly. Um, <laughs> this this is dangerous and perverse stuff coming in here very quickly. Uh, and, of course, you've got... Well,
5: it, it tells- It shows the cheapening of human life, life reduced to its absolutely most base uh, level. And of course, we were waiting for it. It had to come eventually. But now the next item up is we've been told by the climatologists, the ones that are warning us we're going to burn up or freeze to death any day, depending on what kind of climate change they want. They've been warning us that our protein sources, like raising cows and whatnot, are not sustainable. And we've all been saying, wait for it, wait for it. Uh, We're going to be made to eat bugs someday. Well, restaurants are now going full bore, some of them into serving insects. Here we have Bug Appetite, five restaurants serving uh, these sort of things. Uh, It says here, we have all tried that friend, maybe it's you, or excuse me, we all have that friend, maybe it's you, who has to try everything from Awful Dishes, O-F-F-A-L, to those crafted with the next big thing. While insects such as ants, grasshoppers, and crickets are already popular in parts of Mexico and elsewhere in the world, the sustainable this sustainable source of protein has recently swarmed menus across the US and Canada. Grab your favorite adventurous eater and hit up one of those restaurants serving insects for an adventurous meal to remember. Not near any of them. We'll go to Open Table, and you can look them up. And not far away from here in McAllen, Texas, just last night, they announced that there's a restaurant, and I believe the restaurant's name includes the word crickets, and they serve crickets at this mm-hmm. South South Texas restaurant. Mm-hmm. Say it again?
1: Yeah.
5: Well, mule. uh mule. I, I guess it's called mule. I'm not sure why my wife is saying. Anyway, here we have one of the delectable dishes. Uh, some restaurant called Bakan, B-A-K-A-N in Miami, Florida, has two creepy crawlers on the menu, uh, agave worms, which, you know, are used to, uh, are used in the tequila process as well, are pan fried to crispy perfection with guacamole served on a blue corn tortilla. And then the uh, there's another meal uh, that features ant eggs sauteed in butter. And here, not to be outdone, we have one in Washington, D.C., the other Washington. Um, I won't read the whole thing, but basically it's grasshoppers, a grasshopper taco. Um, So uh, we've been waiting for more concrete proof that this is where our protein sources are going. And so restaurants are pushing it. And, um, of course, you can still get Texas brisket and all the other conventional things, but it is a rather disturbing trend. This is not to say that bugs maybe haven't been a source of protein for many centuries, perhaps, around the world, but they certainly fell out of favor, and now we see, we see them coming back. Of course, it's a choice. We don't have to eat them necessarily, but they push it under the um, climate change mantra oftentimes, so we have to be concerned about where this is going.
1: Oh, it's a choice for the moment, Mark. I don't think it's going to be a choice for that much longer. No,
0: and the other thing that I've I've observed is bags of dog food, which is now available in pet in uh, pet shops, pet stores, which actually says insect protein on the the bag. So this is clearly a a policy which is being forced in very quickly. Mm. Um, on that note, Mark, we're we're going to finish the main news here. We're going to invite um, viewers into extra time if you're paid up. Member of UK column, come into extra time as Mark's going to take us through another very interesting section on his latest uh, visit to a conference. Uh, but we go, we have to end the news here at the moment. So we're going to say, David, thank you very much for joining us, and and uh, Mark. But we'll see you in a few minutes in extra time. See you then. See you then. Thank you for joining us. Bye bye.